The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Hello there and welcome to Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio. In this episode of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, this is a podcast dedicated to our great volunteer fire service and getting all listeners to embrace our message that developing, displaying, and maintaining a professional image and reputation is the duty and the responsibility of all firefighters and recognizing that true professionalism is never defined by a paycheck. Tom Merrill here, and thanks again for joining me. I'm always so glad to have you listening in. And I want to thank everybody who's been reaching out to me from time to time to tell me that you enjoy the podcast and to give me ideas for future episodes and to tell me about what you're doing in your hometown department um, to preach the professional message and and portray that professional image that, that we're talking about. I really appreciate it. So please feel free to continue contacting me at any time. And if I can ever be of help or talk to you or you want to chat about some things going on, feel free because I truly appreciate all of your friendships. And I, I would never take it for granted. And that's a promise. I don't take it for granted at all. And I, I really appreciate it. And, and speaking of folks contacting me, I've had a lot of you reach out to me to get a copy of my book, which was released last month. And that's the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. I've been signing copies and shipping them out to people. And I'm amazed at the, I'm actually very humbled at the great feedback I've been receiving. I just came uh, just prior to recording the podcast here. I just met a gentleman from the Wrights Corners uh, Fire Company, which is north of me, um, 35, 45 minutes away. And he met me because they purchased five books and I met him and handed off five books to him just within the last hour. And it just makes me feel great. You know, it was a, over a four year project. So um, it was definitely a labor of love. And I'm really proud of how it turned out. And if you would like a copy of the book, certainly go to Fire Engineering Books and Videos and you can get it there or contact me if you'd like a signed copy and we can talk about signing it and how I can get it out to you. And just don't hesitate to let me know if you'd like a copy. So again, just uh, just came out a month ago and I'm very proud of it. So, And as 2023 comes to an end, and it's hard to imagine that, yes, we are into November. The year is drawing to a close. We can start planning for 2024, right? And it's not too soon to begin planning for FDIC 2024. And I hope to see you there. I'm going to be there all week. I'll be presenting my four-hour pre-conference workshop. I think it's going to be on Monday. Right now it is scheduled for Monday. And I would love it if you could come and attend. We're going to spend four hours talking about building and portraying and maintaining a professional operation in our volunteer departments and how we can hold ourselves accountable 
to uphold that professional culture that we're looking for. So it's not just organizationally, it's personally as well that we want to portray professionalism. It applies on both sides. And there's a lot of things we can do and we should be doing to provide our residents with this professional level of service and to hold ourselves to the professional scale. And that's what we're going to be talking about during the four hours at FDIC in April. And I really hope I can see you there. And speaking of building a professional culture of excellence, that's exactly the topic that we're going to be talking about on this episode. Because sometimes organizations do need to do a hard reset. All of our departments can definitely hit a rough spot, right? And it isn't a statement made to disparage anybody or any organization. It's just how it is. It can be that way in the scouts. It can be that way in the PTA, church groups, charitable organizations, businesses. This isn't just the volunteer fire service things. It can happen anywhere. Everywhere can go from good times to bad times in a short period of time. Everything's rolling along great. Members, every, everyone's committed and focused on the mission, whatever that mission is. And they're all working toward common goals and everybody's doing the job that's expected of them. And it can go on for years and years and years. But then sometimes a rough spot hits and a rough time comes around. Maybe there's not as people, many people stepping forward to volunteer or join, and maybe there's a drop in people wanting to do some extra work or take, take on leadership roles. Maybe the previous movers and shakers in the organization moved out of the area, retired, or maybe they even passed away. Whatever. As they say, stuff happens. You can change that word if you want, but stuff happens, right? And it leaves the organization maybe straying off course a little bit, and hopefully... It's only off course for a short time, but eventually there's a new group that comes in and they take the reins and they are determined to right the ship and maybe do the things necessary to get people again to focus on their mission and to bring the organization back to where it once was. And it's not always easy. There can be pitfalls and stumbling blocks and obstacles, but with the right people, with the right attitude, it can happen. And on this episode of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, we're going to talk about redefining the culture in the volunteer fire service. And we're going to talk with a couple of guests here that had to hit the reset button in their department, but they have some pretty good results to show for it. Joining me is Chief Jason Bowman and Assistant Chief Chad Akins from the White Rock Fire Protection District in the great state of Missouri. And Chief Bowman, he's been around the block. He's been around the fire service pretty much his whole life. His grandfather helped start the first rescue squad back in his hometown when his grandpa came back from World War II. His father was a member of the fire service, so the chief would accompany him down to the firehouse quite often. He remembers going to meetings down there. And then he joined the fire service back in 1995, first in Knoll, Missouri, the volunteer fire service there, and he began a paid career in the Bella Vista Fire Department in Arkansas in 2003. And like I said, he's also the chief in White Rock, Missouri, a 100% volunteer fire department covering, if I read it right, about 90 square miles in McDonald County, Missouri. Now, that's crazy to me because my little volunteer department 
covers about six square miles. <laughs> so I cannot imagine covering 90 square miles. Anyway, the chief has had quite a journey and he's launched some great initiatives with his team there at White Rock. And we're going to talk to him about what they've done there. And then we're also going to have his assistant chief, uh, Akins. Is, he's been around too. He served in two other volunteer fire departments in the state of Arkansas before coming to White Rock. He served a number of years in the U.S. Army. He's been involved in three campaigns, and I want to give him a big thank you to thank him for his service. And he's also known as a bit of a motivator, as he says he is a knack for motivating others. And perhaps it's due to the fact that he's also a coach. He's got a, a lot of coaching experience as he has coached baseball, football, wrestling, softball. And he was also a deputy sheriff, too. So he's got a lot of experience. He's been around the block. And these two chiefs have worked together for the past few years now. They've overcome obstacles. And that's what we're going to talk about because they had some big challenges in their way. And they wanted to hit a reset button and rebuild the culture in their volunteer fire department, which, by the way, was down to eight members at one point. As they describe it, training was in shambles. Members lacked motivation. There was no spirit or pride. Um, they had very little training, and they really didn't even have the support of their community. So I'd say those are some pretty big challenges. Maybe they resonate with some of you listeners out there because I actually I know they do because I've had so many people reach out to me over the years and talk to me about the challenges they're facing, whether it's lack of training, whether it's lack of spirit or pride, whether it's decreasing membership, whether it's lack of family atmosphere. So I know these are common concerns, but the chief and his team have hit that reset button and they've slowly brought the department back. It now boasts over 30 members proud members as well. And they're starting to be recognized by the community for the professional way that they conduct their business. Lots of lessons to be learned. Let's get right into it. Chiefs, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. We appreciate you having us. So Chief, I want to start with you. I gave a little background on you, but let's launch in a little bit about your fire service journey. Talked a little bit about your grandpa was a member, so and then your father. So you've kind of had it in your blood for a while before even joining, right? Tell us a little bit about where you come from. Uh, my grandfather was from uh, Gothenburg, Nebraska. And when he came back from World War II, they didn't have any sort of rescue. And he seen the need for it and in the little town that they that they lived in and they they kind of built their first rescue squad and found a need for it. My father got his start there. And, and as a child, I, I got to chase my dad around and, and go to the meetings and stuff like that. So I had a little bit of that blood in me the whole time and, yeah. and seeing it and going with it. And then when we moved down here to Southwest Missouri, when I had the chance to turn 18, I went and joined the Noel Fire Department. I got my start there, you know, made my way through the ranks a little bit there. And then in 2003, I made my way over to the Bella Vista Fire Department. And, and that's a uh, career department? Yes, it's a career department. And I, I got a good education from my chief there. He helped me kind of set a lot of the seeds for what we do right now is, has been set by him and, and our deputy chief that we have. It kind of really helped me through the process. And then you... 
you were in Knoll, then you went to Bella Vista, and then you made your way to White Rock. Did you go to White Rock specifically to become chief, or were you just serving as a firefighter when the chief's opening came up? So I was a member of the public, watching and seeing what was going on. You know, it really hurt my feelings to see that this could be happening to an apartment. And so I reached out to the board members and said, hey, I said, I'm offering, offering an opportunity for you guys to clean this up and let's make a change because the community deserve, deserves better than what they were getting. Right. Right. Okay. The board all seen it, just did not have a, had a, had a good acceptable way to fix the problem. And chief uh, assistant chief Akins, as I mentioned uh, the, in your intro, you've served in a couple departments, but you were out of the fire service when the chief approached you to come and help him. Right. Yes, sir. Okay, so you were not looking to get back in, or did he have to twist your arm a little bit, or was it kind of always something that ah, I just needed a little kick to get back into it? A little, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I've done this when I was young, and then served in the Army, messed myself up a little bit while I was in the military, uh, medically retired from that, worked with the Sheriff's Department for a little bit for something to do, you know, on the side, and then I've owned a few businesses and coached and stuff like that through the years here, and always been a part of the community, and you know, helped in ways I could. And I just didn't think there was much that I could do in the fire service anymore because my lungs are messed up to where I'm not going to be able to go interior and stuff like that. Like I could have when I was young. And so Jason kept telling me, he's like, no, come on. There's, there's plenty for you to do, you know, you know, help me get these guys lined out and stuff like that. So I was like, okay. And then I, I went down there and seen what he had going on and what he needed and seen there was a big need. You know, and that illustrates how importantly that the professional organization recognizes that people bring different skill sets to the table and maybe not everyone is that interior firefighter. So, yeah, excellent. Now, we're going to get into some of the problems that confronted you both. But before we do that, I want to hear a little bit about the makeup of White Rock. Chief, could you just tell us um, the size of your district is about 90 square miles. How many stations, how many runs you go on a year, that type of information. Kind of give an overview of the department for the listeners. Okay, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're roughly in the 90 square miles. We take, we have two stations and it, we're 100% volunteer. And the, the population of our district is 3,500, but we have a lot of uh, transients come through as far as vacationers and stuff like that. We have a, two major corridors that come through here. That the, just south of us, we have Northwest Arkansas, you know, which is the home of Walmart. So we get a lot of a lot of traffic from that. So we get we get quite the quite an array of different calls and stuff. We do roughly about four hundred calls a year, and they all they they all vary. We have a, a big ATV park here, so we see a lot of you know backwoods rescue and you know technical rescue as you would put it do you guys run ems no we run first responders but we were looking to head towards running our own ems okay establishing our own ambulance do you have like a county ambulance or something that comes and transports patients yes we have a county ambulance and it covers 650 square miles Woo! i bet you there can be some delays there huh yeah, a lot. <laughs> we average uh, we average at least a forty five minute wait for an ambulance. Wow, wow. So we, we we recognize the need for our community, so we're pushing to try to get get the get the funds and the and the equipment we need to make that make that difference and improve the quality of service that we provide to our department. Our wow. Community. 
from our department. Are you looking to have a, like a volunteer ambulance service or would, are you looking to try and fund that and have it be a paid career position? Uh, it, it would have to be a career position yeah. for what we've got. Okay. So when, if, if it's a 90 to a hundred square mile area, how long, what would be your longest run from point A to point B to get to somebody? Like how long would it take you to get there? There's, there's places it'll take you 40 minutes to get across the our districts. Yeah. Wow. And if someone's having a medical emergency and has to wait 45 minutes on top of that for the ambulance. Correct. Yeah. I could see why you want to improve upon that for the residents, but I guess people aren't know that that live in that rural setting, right? It's something they're probably yeah. familiar with in that. So let's talk about some of these problems that you confronted. So you mentioned that you personally saw them before you were even a member of the department, right, Chief? Yes. So you're pointing out earlier that, or you told me in the email exchange that there wasn't a lot of community support for the department. You were a community member that was Correct. seeing this firsthand. What was going on with the department? I just general lack of any training at all, you know, coming from a career department, you know, watching them on scenes, it was just, it was appalling, you know, the way they acted, the way, the way they portrayed the department in the public. You know, it, and the rest of the public had seen the same thing that I had seen. Right. Chief Aikens, were you seeing it as well in your role in the area? I had seen it and heard a lot more about it than I'd seen even because people talked about it a lot. Mm -hmm. Regular people, citizens, community members? Regular citizens, yes. Yeah. Like I said, they were, they were laughing about uh, this department a lot, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I always like to say, we need our communities as much as they need us. So, um, you know, we definitely need their support. And so chief, th th what prompted you then to go to the board and say, what, was there an opening or was, I, I mean, I don't want to cause any hard feelings with anybody, but was it just something that you said, Hey, I would love to get appointed to this position. So I, I, I sat back and I talked, you know, something ran this through my head and it was, you know, something's got to change. And if I don't step up and try to make a change, then it's just going to continue the way it is. Right, right. So I personally took it upon myself to try to make that change, and that's when I approached the fire district board about taking the position as chief. Gotcha. So your chiefs are appointed; they're not elected. Yeah, uh, they're they're not elected; they're appointed by the fire board. Okay. Interesting, because as you know about. Most of the country elects the volunteer fire chiefs, which is a whole subject for another show, another time. But so you you had a board that approached that you had to be appointed from. And, and I want to just point out to the listeners, you know, the problems that you're describing and going to get into in a little more detail, they're not unique to your department. As I man mentioned, they can happen anywhere at any time. And um, it doesn't go bad all at once in a lot of cases. It starts snowballing over a number of years. It can it can happen slowly as key players leave, but it can happen to everybody. And then it can go on for a while until you get people like yourselves that are determined to come in and right the ship. And that's what you did. So I want to talk about that journey, how you rebranded your department. You've identified the problem and you went to the board to say, hey, I think I can help you. And the board listened to you. And that highlights to me one of the key aspects, we'll call it number one, building relationships. 
right? You had to build a relationship with the board. Did they know you when you went up and talked to them the first time? Had you been talking to them ahead of time? How did that work? So I knew I knew one of the board members, and I then I went to him and, and talked to him, and he gave me the numbers to the other ones, and I just went to went to him individually and said, "Hey, this is what I have to offer." And this is this is what I see from the outside. We need to get this corrected, and they all agreed. And one of the first things you told them is, "I'm going to overhaul the SOPs or SOGs." And um, yes. you made you were sure to let me know that you were so appreciative of the support they've provided you. Um, what were some of the SOPs that you had to change right away? So a lot of them were just really, really vague and there was no uniform policy. There was no response policy. You know, it, the day-to-day stuff was not there that needed to be. The, so they had a basic structure, but nothing that, that would take care of the individual issues that we see every day. Mm-hmm. It gave them too much room to do what they wanted to and it, it caused issues. I believe you had a multi-year plan that you laid out, right? What you were looking to do within the first five years, 10 years. And I think you said you went all the way up to 30 years. Yes, I gave I gave a 5, 10, 15, and 30-year plan. And this, this, this appointment you got from the board is until they decide that they don't want you anymore, or you decide to step down. They don't have yes. to reappoint you every year annual review of my job performance i see now who are these commissioners are they elected are they appointed or they're elected by the community okay are they firefighters or just community residents the most of them are past firefighters gotcha okay they were there back when it before it was a fire district and the the older gentlemen and, and women that had put forth the effort to get the department started and do they also collect the tax money for supporting the department? Do they have any role in that? So that is all. So with it being a fire district, that is all done by the county and the state when people pay their property taxes. That's where and it comes in. And we have a treasurer that takes care of it from there. And what, that gets split up among the departments throughout the state? No, that's just our, within, within, within our fire. I got you. Okay. I got you. So the, the commissioners don't deal with that at all? No. Okay. Okay. Who do you have to get approval from to be able to purchase things? Uh, that I run all that through my board. We do. We'll sit down. We'll do our budget, and if it falls within one of my line items, you know, if it's uh, say five thousand dollars or more, I make sure that I get board approval before I spend any money. Gotcha. And Chief Aikens, you were out of the fire service, as we mentioned. What? Uh, how did that go down? Did he just come up to you one day and say, "Hey, join the fire department"? <laughs> kind of started talking to me about it and so I think the first thing I did was go to the football game with them we always go out there and park the trucks and support the kids and uh, I met with a few of them there and like I said I seen that they were lacking any kind of structure basically um, Jason just took over and so I told him I'd come in and help with structuring and supporting the guys the guys like he said they didn't have any training but they didn't have any structure either, you know? So we come in and we put structure in place, you know, as far as setting down and saying, okay, you have captains, you have lieutenants and, you know, we're going to go through this structure and people are actually going to be held accountable to show up to trainings and make so many calls and stuff like that. And 
the guys come to us and they're like, hey, we've heard all this before. What's going to be the difference? I said, well, the difference is, is you're going to get on board or you're going to get out. You know, and then we're going to find people that get on board with us. And so they they have. They've gotten on board. We've had a couple that got out too. But, I mean, mm-hmm. most of them have gotten on board and they see that we, we meant what we said. And, you know, so we, we're pushing forward and they've all started pushing forward with us. Right. And Chief, what would you say was the toughest new SOP or way of doing things that uh, you met the most resistance on? I think, really, (laughs) it it was more the response and the way they acted on scene. You know, before they would just kind of get there and they would mill around and not do nothing. And, you know, we sat down and said, hey, when you get there, depending on what the call is, if you've got a structure fire, you come off that truck geared up, packed up, you got two hands, put two tools in it, and go staging. Before, they would just get off the truck and mill around and look and gawk, and nobody knew exactly who was doing what or anything like that. And before this, there was no training, like uh, no one was held to a standard, no no, no regular drills? or No, no. They had no idea to do. I mean, now, when we roll onto a, a fire scene, everybody knows the roles, the different roles, and they know by according to how they pull in, who, who's coming in next, what needs to be done next. They've been trained, okay, if I'm here at this point, then this is what's next. Okay. You know, and they know who to look to if they are not sure what's next to be told what to get, go do next, you know. Yeah. So it, it looks like a unit now. And and what what's the training standard now? Are you training once a week, once a month, quarterly? How do you guys want your members to show up? We do every Monday night. Every Monday night. Every Monday night. And members are expected to make a certain amount of drills, correct? Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. And before there was no no standard. Right. And and before you know, like I said, they would show up, mill around. They'd be smoking cigarettes and doing everything else. And, you know, like. There was, there was times that, you know, some of them would mill through and say, hey, look here, look what I found. You know, and they, would, they were stealing from our citizens. And that was a big part of what we had to get eliminated. Wow. I was going to get into that in a second because I know you put that in the email to me and I was I read it like three times. I'm like, what is he saying here? But what you're talking about, putting this structure in place to our listeners you you volunteered to join the fire service. The fire service is paramilitary organization. Think if our military didn't train, right? We are volunteering for something that can kill you. It is so dangerous. Why wouldn't you want to train? Why wouldn't you want to be part of a well-trained team? So exactly. you, I, I like the plan about putting structure together and coming up with you know, captains and lieutenants and and not having everyone milling around, having a plan in place on the training ground that correlates then to a, a plan in place when you arrive on the fire scene. So I got to imagine there had to be an old guard that didn't want any set of any standards for training. Mm-hmm. We had a couple. Yeah, they're gone now. Yeah. Uh, we made it clear to them. I told several of them that when I get there during training, you're you're expected to train, or I'm going to send you home. When you come on scene, you're expected to go to work, or I'm going to send you home. I don't need onlookers. And we had several people get mad at us, and I sent a few down the road on scene and at training because 
we made it clear to them, if you're going to be there, you're going to work. I understand it's volunteer, but if you're not doing anything, then we don't need you volunteering. And one thing you did to help with your training budget was take some of the commissioners or public officials to watch you train and go to some of the schools, right? And then they were open their eyes a little bit too, didn't it? Yes. All part yeah, of building that relationship. We'll, we'll take anybody anywhere, anytime that we can, and we can afford to do it. Whether it's our board members or a person from the community, if they want to see what we want, to, what we're doing, and how we're training, we open the doors and let them in. Yeah, yeah. And I got to imagine that. Did you go full bore into these changes, or did you move slowly? You know, the old saying, "Rome wasn't built in a day." Did you did you concentrate on just certain things at the to roll out, or did you just throw a lot at the members? Yeah, we we slowly rolled a few things out, but there was some stuff that we just full bore went after. You know, that the initial the initial getting in when I got there before Chad got, there was some stuff that, you know, it, it took a little bit of time until I could get people like Chad there to help me, you know, make that difference. But we took baby steps then and then once we got the right crew in, we were able to full bore run with ninety percent of what we got going on now. I got gotcha. you. Okay. And, you know, I want to tell the listeners, too, as they're talking here, you know, this this journey highlights something else we've talked about on this program before. And, and sometimes we have to take a step back and remember, and it's it'd be easy to give up, right? Sometimes we got great ideas. Sometimes we throw new initiatives out there and it meets some resistance. And the easy thing to do is quit and throw our hands up in the air and say, well, screw this. I tried. It didn't work. But any professional organization doesn't do that. And professional volunteers will continue to concentrate on the mission, what they're looking to do. Any successful leader does that. Through all the adversity, through all the challenges, they stick with it. So stick with your ideas in the face of adversity. It's something we talk about quite a bit on this show. So you identified some problems you built a relationship with the governing board. You started building relationships with your members, but you established expectations. Hey, let's let the past be the past. If you're going to volunteer to be a member of the White Rock Fire Protection District, here's what we're going to hold you accountable to do. And you outline training. Again, who wouldn't want to train? It's going to make you safer. It's going to make your partner safer. It's going to make the organization safer. You know, this isn't, you're not wearing costumes. It's not the land of make-believe. It's a very serious business, and we need to start acting like it. And if we're part of the good old boy network that doesn't believe, good old boy and good old girl network that doesn't believe that's important, then I say, and I know you agree, it's time to step aside. However, if you want to get to 2023, soon to be 2024 standards, take training seriously, organize your your department, and get at it because the results will be there. You'll be a better trained department. How's it paid off on the fire ground? The fire ground has been absolutely amazing. Our guys have went from people shoving them out of the way to now people will step out of the way to let our guys go do the job. And, and our, our personnel is is a hundred times more proficient than what they were. We have we have less broken equipment. We have better equipment now because of 
of the way they they are willing to learn and train and use the tools instead of just bullying bullying their way through stuff or not doing anything at all. Right. And did you cast? Did you cast? Go ahead, Chief. I'm sorry. I was going to say, and the neighboring departments are asking for our guys to come do mutual aid now to where before they kind of blackballed them. They didn't want them. You know, that, that's all changed in the last two years to where we're, we're higher up on their call list now. I mean, a lot of them, we're second in for them. So you, you had know, to build relationships with the neighboring departments too. Absolutely. You had a damaged yeah. reputation, not just with the community, but the neighboring departments as well. They didn't have, they lacked confidence in you, it sounds like. Yeah, it was bad. Yep. How about yeah, the yeah. interpersonal relationships with the neighboring departments? Did you reach out to them, extend the olive branch, and let them know what you were doing and say, hey, bygones be bygones. I know the reputation we have, but I'm going to work hard to improve it, and here's what you're going to get if you call us for help. Absolutely. That was one of the, one of the first things that we did once we got Chad and we started getting our guys to where they were starting to know what they needed to be doing. And we started going out to our neighboring departments then and saying, hey, this is this is a new new era of what we have at White Rock. Mm-hmm. You know, would you please reconsider what your past thoughts on us? Right. Since then it's it's been absolutely amazing. We have we've gotten huge requests to to do mutual aid now, which would before would have been never heard of. Okay. So you identified training as a priority and getting your members to operate as a team. And I got to imagine you concentrated over and over again on the basics. I got to think you really hammered those basics, right? You get those residential base, whatever your basic incident is for us, it would be like a residential fire, but that's where you probably started. I got to imagine. We started with our bread and butter. Getting, getting water out the hose was our first concern. And having members properly geared up and equipped and, and you did it over and over again. So it became second nature. Yes, sir. And you gave structure to the organization. Did you appoint lieutenants and captains or did you let the department have a say in it? How did that work? So it, it took some time, but, it, you know, I sat back and I said, hey, I said, well, it, it's getting to the point now that we've got people that are really stepping up. And we started out with lieutenants. And that was somebody that was the, the lieutenant's job was to maintain what what happened at his station. You know, make sure the trucks were clean after the fires. You know, there was any needs that he could bring that to me. And then we started seeing that. And then as our personnel started growing, that's we were able to establish a captain over EMS. We established a captain over our fire training, and now we have one that is over all of our vehicle maintenance. That's great. You gave them responsibilities. You held them, you held them accountable, but I got to imagine you let them go too, right? You let them do the job, no micromanaging. They would bring issues and challenges to you, but you would just expect them to take care of their areas of responsibilities. And that never had existed before. No. Okay. They had, they had, in the past, they had handed out some titles, but it was just to be a part of the good old boy club. Right. Right. Yeah, and I know some people were still probably rolling their eyes and like, uh, you know, all these ideas aren't going to amount to anything. So you had to continue on with other ideas. One of them was your uniform policy. Tell us a little bit about that and how that came about. So we would, we had guys that would show up on you know, a medical call at your house and they would look like they just called, crawled across the stockyard. And I was like, guys, if we're going into, if we're going into Mrs. Smith's home, we need to be presentable. 
we want to look like a professional. That way, when she gets there, she don't just think that some hillbilly just walked in her yard and then into her house. We need to be mindful of these people's places and be respectful of them. And by doing, by being respectful, looking like a professional is the best way to start. What did you do? What did you uh, outfit your members with? Did, I mean, I, I mean, I, it's hard when you're volunteers, right? You're not wearing a uniform 24-7. So did you encourage them to keep something in the car? Was it a jacket, a cover-up? What was it? So I, to start things out with, you know, we didn't have a budget for any of it. So I went out and I bought polos for every one of them. And, you know, those that needed it, you know, we said, okay, it was going to be polos, black boots, black, black belt, and pants. And... Most of them went out and got got their pants and their belts and stuff like that. And those that couldn't, we went and got it for them. And that was really a big eye-opener that showed that we cared for them. And we got more buy-in from that. And then once they started, you know, we had them that they would carry those in their vehicles. And when they'd show up on scene, they would pop their polo on and go in. We've since, you know, been able to establish a uniform allowance to get them stuff. You know, we buy the t-shirts, we buy them jackets, and we buy them uh, polos and everything that they need to get them started. There's just something about being professional when you look professional. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I used to say, and I still say a good spot to start is if you're giving out the t-shirts and the sweatshirts, it, in addition to keeping them in your vehicle, start having the members wear them on a drill night and a meeting night. You know, that way if a run comes in, you're you're looking like a professional firefighter as you go out the door. So understand you might not be wearing it at your paid job. You might not be wearing it as you're working around the house, whatever. But if you're going to the firehouse to drill or you're going to that board meeting or company meeting or committee meeting, throw on the job shirt or the T-shirt. And that way, when people stop at the firehouse, you look like a firefighter. And if you go on a run, you look like a firefighter. Some of these simplest things can say the most about being a professional. And just and just the little bit that the guys had them when we first started that you could see the relief in some in some people's eyes that when they seen somebody that come through that had a professional looking shirt that hey somebody's here to help me now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it, it it brought more confidence when somebody walked through the door that this is what they seen and it really helped and that just the polos had helped start building back some of the uh, response from the community they kind of it looked a little better to them they were a lot more happy with it right right what other things did you do to um to build this professional culture did you have to address i think you mentioned it just a few minutes back about on-scene behavior was there a certain expectation you laid out about how the troops were going to be behaving on scene let's say maybe not even a structure fire, just a routine smells and bells call that members are milling about on. Was there a certain level of behavior you held them accountable or you still do hold them accountable to? Yes. Well, you know, they've got to be respectful of people. You know, they got to watch how they speak, you know, no cussing or anything like that. No smoking on scene, you know, and really, you know, in the past, like I said, they were having issues with some of them having some sticky fingers, you know, we, we, we've eliminated those people, and but really being mindful of Mrs. Smith or Mr. Smith and how, how we are in their home or around their vehicles in their time of need, you know, 
find out what you can do for them. I mean, if if it's as simple as sweeping up a mess that was made by whatever accident it was or helping them get their purse out of their car they just wrecked, that's what our guys are expected to do. Right. Trying to explain to them when you start getting to where you're circling, then it's time to start dispersing. Because I see too many times that you see pictures of incidents where something's going on, you see a lot of the volunteers are in a circle talking. And I told them, I was like, I don't like seeing those pictures. If I see you're working in the pictures, then you're doing your job. But if you're over there standing and talking, then you probably didn't need to be there. Yeah, one no. of the jokes that I've heard quite often and is, you know, the fire gets knocked down and the firefighters get in circles and start talking about what they did, what they saw. And meanwhile, there's equipment laying all over there's salvage right. work that needs to be done. There's hose that needs to be picked up, whatever it is. And it's like, folks, let's go. We got a lot of work to do here. The time for uh, yep. yeah, time for patting ourselves on the back is back at the firehouse. Not right now. There's work to be done, right? <laughs> the back in service, then you can have fun. Yeah, right. So, so you started weeding some bad apples out, but not to worry because you started bringing members in. Tell me about this membership journey. I think you said you were down to about eight members when you took over. What's it like now and how's it looking? So we're up, we, we're kind of fluctuating right now between 37 and 34 personality. We do, it kind of deals with school and stuff like that, but we, uh, we've done really good there for a while. We're averaging about four new members a month, you know, putting them through school and a lot of them, that's what they come for is they realize that, Hey, we're willing to help them get on that path to become a career fireman. And we, we've got them as far away as, well, what, 25, 30 miles that come to be a part of our department because they want to get on that path to become a career fireman. With plenty of departments around them, but they hear about us. And we tell, we tell the one because he is so far away that we're like, you're going to leave your gear station, you know, because we didn't give him a lot. We didn't invest a lot into him because we talked about it and we're like, how serious is this guy? You know, he's so far away, but then he started showing up to mutual aid calls, even in the middle of the night, you know, 1 AM, he was out there fighting a structure with us one night. And we're like, this guy's a little serious, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he went to a lot of things and put in the time. And it's just like, it kind of shocked us that he was willing to come that far and put in the, the time and the work that he has, but it's all because he just wanted to be a part of our group. Cause he's heard so much about it um, from one of his friends, you know? So, uh, made us pretty proud to just know that that guy is willing to drive by so many other fire departments to just come be a part of ours. And hearing about it is one thing, but then getting on board and experiencing it is another. And I believe Chief Aikens, it was your son joined, correct? That's correct. Yes. He's our training captain. And where did he start as a junior or a young member? No, he, he was an adult. So uh, Jason, yeah, and he started in with us just as a regular member, but then he got on with Bella Vista as well. So he's career with them. Um, he's doing it full time, and then he volunteered with us. And he's one of them that Jason put him in that spot because when our guy that was doing the training started slacking off, Dylan was learning the stuff at Bella Vista. So he started coming in on Monday nights, and he wasn't even asking us at the point. He was just as soon as training was starting, Dylan's already out there having them do things, you know? So before me and Jason could even get out the door to start training, he had them out there. They were already running through drills and stuff. So we started noticing that and we just kind of sat back and let him start taking that over. And then we talked about it and then he'd come in and he would have training laid out for 
you know, several weeks at a time. And he'd run it by Jason. Jason's like, yeah, run with it, you know. And so he kind of just took over that role. And so we just put him in there. And he's been doing it now for almost a year, right? You know, right out of a year. And so it, it just fit him real well. And, I mean, he's young, but the guys, the respect that he has from our department is, is really – it's pretty astronomical to see, you know, for his age. Yeah. So an organized training officer, he's thinking about it. He's got plans in place. He's organized ahead of time. People aren't showing up on Monday night looking at each other like, what do you want to do tonight? Right. right. They know uh, if they show up, they're going to have an organized drill ready to go. Right. Because when he's on shift at work, he's writing down, taking notes of what they're doing, talking to his captain down there and stuff about what they're doing and what he should be doing at a volunteer level and they're, they're explaining to him and then he's messaging our group. Hey, make sure you bring your gear. We plan to do this, you know, and then he puts it together and runs with it. A lot of times they're asking me, Hey, what are we training on? I'm like, uh, I don't know. You right. know, I don't know until I get there either. Right. Right. Yeah. Imagine that yeah. being prepared, you know, a volunteers, most precious commodity is time. And if you're wasting their time, they may not come the following Monday night. So you want them showing up, and you right. want them showing up to a drill that's well prepared and ready to go and benefits them. Everyone feels yeah. like they've learned something and it sounds like Dylan's certainly doing that. Yeah, it's and with Dylan doing like he's doing, there's others that have, that have seen what, what Dylan has done and has started to pick up and find other areas within the fire service that they're wanting to, to expand on. And so we've got guys that want to go to Swift Water and that's what they want to be. That's mm. their main goal. You know, one of our members right now that's in fire one and two was best friends with my son and Dylan started trying to get him to come to the meetings and he's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. And then he started showing up a little bit and he'd come to one or two. And then next thing you know, he's out there doing drills with us. And then he's asking for gear and then he took EMT and got his EMT license. And now he's halfway through fire one and two and he's applying for jobs everywhere. Oh, fantastic. You know, I mean, so it, it's the young guys running are bringing in more young guys too. You know, they see that excitement in each other and they're like, hey, he's found something he's passionate about. I want to go do that too. Yeah, there's two things that are going to help bring new members in. Number one is the excitement. Number two is just showing they're part of a great organization. Nobody wants to join a sinking ship. Nobody wants to join an organization filled with mean people, dysfunctional people. And I mean, that can be half the battle right there, right? What, what do you think has been the biggest thing that's brought in new members for you? Improving your reputation? Does that lead to word of mouth? What's done it? Like, what's brought you from 8 to 38? Is it like a just a trickle effect where everyone's talking about it? And you I said people have heard about you, right? That's a lot of it right there is people talking. But, you know, we, we've built such a family bond through the fire department that it's, you know, friends and family have come in and joined, ended up joining the department. That's just a, just in family functions, right? That's what I would say. We don't just do. It's not always just hey, let's go to the fire station and, and drill and train, or we're gonna go answer a call. Like we get together, we've done we've done ski shoots. Uh, a lot of our wives got together and went and did a, a painting session together. You know, we've got together and did work. You know, to help other people on the department work days and stuff like that. You know, we go to church together. A lot of us. Uh, we have dinners together a lot of times. Um, we do a lot of events together. You know, it's not just always fire or always EMS or anything like that, you know. So we do a lot of family stuff outside of that. 
the volunteer firefighters aren't going to be much without family support. So that is a huge part of the equation as well. We got to have the support of our families and you need to include the families like you are doing, invite them down to the firehouse, have functions and activities. And in addition to getting the family support, you had to rebuild your image with the community. Um, You had a lot of obstacles there. And as you mentioned earlier, and as you said to me, members were stealing from community residents. That's got to be a tough thing. You can be marked for generations after something like that happens. Yeah, it's that's one of those things that I think the community has seen that we've made the changes to get away from that. But that was a very hard thing to overcome. You know, it. Some of those people and some of the older people in the community still see that and they still remember that. And it, that's something that, you know, it's going to take years to get past. Right. Yeah. What uh, What were some of the other things that the community what members didn't trust you about? What were some other things that happened that just hurt your reputation within the community? Was it in addition to stealing poor performance, I would imagine? Yeah, very poor performance, you know. Just general way they they conducted their themselves and you know, they would wear wear their department t-shirts to the bar and drinking and, and there was a lot of uh, driving erratic yeah ah. they, they drove in town and, and the way they just the way they treated the general public you know right no regard for anybody's safety. So what did you do? Get out in the community much more if, as possible? And, you know, obviously everyone's under the orders and the, the guidance to behave appropriately, t- treat people respectfully. So you started getting well, that, yourself out there more? That's the thing. We try to be involved in the community because, like I was saying, we go to the football games, the home football games. We go and we're involved in the Jane Days with the uh, historical society there. We're invited to the school, to all their fire drills. Uh, they invited us up to the Halloween, you know, all their events now. The school invites us, and, and we're involved in that. Um, where before, they, they didn't get involved with anything. So, you know, the community's got us involved now. Uh, we do the Shop of the Hero. Um, we went out and helped deliver Christmas gifts. Uh, we did Thanksgiving dinners, you know, things like that. We, we try to help with the community now to where before it was all negative and nothing positive going back into the community. So by turning that around and doing all the positive stuff, and they're seeing that now, you know, so it's a whole different image of what people see with us from what it was in the past. Right. Has it helped your funding at all? I know, I think you said you got a grant and you've been buying some new equipment. Um, so we, we, we apply for any grant we can, the AFG grant, the MFA grant, you know, firehouse subs, anything that, anything that we can put our name in for. The Gary Sneeze Foundation is another one that we've received we got uh, we've got an older couple that's 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 what they do they they handle the looking for grants and applying for grants for us they just ask us what we need and we go from there are these department members or just a couple in the community that wants to help their members it's our board president and the secretary again a successful professional operation utilizing the talents of other people which i think is is awesome. And you got out in the public much more, as you said, you built that trust. Nothing's easy. It definitely takes time. Um, but you, you certainly did. And I think you said when you got your new trucks, you like to go out and show those off and people started commenting about the good things you were doing in the community, right? Yes. You know, and that's, 
And that was that was huge. Was the people seen, you know, they'd see us, but when they seen the big trucks, that's our billboard. You know, seeing the billboard out there that says, hey, this is the White Rock Fire Department. They, you know, seeing these new trucks was a new showing us that showing the community that, hey, this is the new White Rock Fire Department. It's not what it used to be. Our trucks are always clean. We're always trying to take care of it. Our guys look good when they come off the truck. They act professional. You know, they're trained, confident. Yes. You know, you mentioned something to me when, when, um, we're talking about building that house pride and building a cohesive unit and you are doing the dinners and doing things together, whether it's camping or hunting or other things. You mentioned that uh, there was a funeral um, and someone, I believe a, a former chief passed away and you mentioned something about the funeral made an impact on the department. Does that ring up? Can you expand on that? What did you do that made such an impact? So Chief Blakely, he was the uh, chief of the White Rock Fire uh, White Rock Fire Department back when I was a kid, uh, and I remember going to the to the meetings with my father when he was a part of the White Rock Department and seeing Chief Blakely, and he was a good man. And then shortly after I took over as chief, he passed away, and I took our guys. And I said, "Hey, I said we we need to honor this guy." So you know. We went in our uniforms that we had. We made sure our trucks were clean. We took all the past members that we could get a hold of and put them in our in our trucks and took them to the to the uh, funeral in the trucks and tried to show as much respect as we could to the family for what he had done for our service. And while we were there, his sons noticed what how how we had made a change from what it was. You know, they they had made it clear that they had want nothing to do with the fire department after their dad was gone because of the direction that it had headed. Mm-hmm. But after his funeral, the both of them come to us and said, hey, we would like to be a part of this. This is not what it used to be. Fantastic. That says it all right there. And again, such a simple thing, an easy thing to do. Um, and, you know, you got to remember, too, listeners, that you get a lot of new members that join that haven't been around long. They don't know the importance of going to these wakes and funerals. It's got to be explained to them. And chief, you did that. You got to tell the people that, Hey, I know you don't know this. This person died. You didn't know them, but we're a firefighting family. We are all about family here at the white rock fire department or whatever department it is. What we do is honor those who served before when they pass away and we're going to go and pay our respects and you pass that on to the new members, and I would hope that they would understand and come and be part of that tradition. But if we don't tell them, we don't discuss how important that is, how can we be mad at them when they don't show up? And you did that. They showed up, and the impact on the family it brought you a couple more members. But even if they weren't going to be new members, maybe they lived out of town and just came in for the funeral, they're talking about your department with their friends and family later on just about what a great group of firefighters came and paid respects and how well run that organization is. It makes one heck of an impact. It really does. I remember getting a, uh, um, we went to a a wake once when I was chief. It was a member who hadn't served for many years, but we got the word that he passed away. And me, my assistant chief, and a few firefighters went to the wake. There couldn't have been more than five of us. 
but the impact us five being there made on that family, it just was amazing. They write, wrote me the most nicest thank you note. And, you know, they all came in from out of town, but we're so impressed that five of us showed up. I mean, I wish we had more. Um, and that's probably where I got the idea that we need to do a better job getting the word out to members that as a member of the family passes away, even though they haven't been active member in 20 years, we still go and pay respects and look at how it paid off for you. Right. Yes, very well. And, it, and like I said, it, my thing is, is with the, with the respect of that, without Mr. Chief Blakely, you know, would we have had anything right now for me to be doing? You know, it, those are the people that set forth the foundation to build the department off of. Right. And we need to show our respects for that. And our whole department understands that and respects that now. Recognize and appreciate the shoulders of those you stand on for sure, because you wouldn't be where you are today without those that served before. Correct. And expanding on building these relationships with people and your community, you also did some partnerships and some collaboration with a local college, which I think circles right back into your training uh, training efforts as well, correct? Yes. So we have a, uh, we have a local community college, the Crowder, Crowder College, and we've partnered with them, and I teach EMT in the evenings, and then we're bringing down the fire science program, and we'll actually start uh, te- teaching fire one and two here, and we've got another partner with Bella Vista to be able to use their burn facility, so we'll be able to do a full service and getting them ready to be a career fireman just right here out of our department. And even if they didn't want to be a career firefighter, you're going to have a well-trained firefighter serving your volunteer department, right? Correct. They could be setting their career somewhere, and they just want to volunteer and help out their local fire department, but they're going to be well-trained, and they're supported by the chief and administration at White Rock. And then we have some members that, you know, like you said, that don't want to be career firemen or anything like that. But if they have goals in their lives, we sit them down and try to find out what they are and say, how can we help you obtain your goals in life? Mm-hmm. So it may not benefit the fire department, but it benefits the fire department to have them there. You know, and if we're helping them obtain their goals and they're there helping us on their time off, it's a win-win. You're showing you care. And let's circle in then on one of the biggest, diciest, most controversial aspects of the volunteer fire service that I get tons of emails about. How do we get away from the good old boy and good old girl club? What can chiefs and leaders do in a fire department to build this family atmosphere and stop some of the infighting that seems to consume a lot of volunteer organizations? So we kind of asked kind of some of our members, you know, what what were their thoughts? And we, what really stands out to them on what we've done? And one of them was that said that, you know, we we eliminate the egos right off the bat. You know, the ego seems to be one of the things that really harms the fire service tremendously. You know, people don't say it, you know, they'll get one guy that picks on them all the time or something like that. And the next thing you know, they leave the service. You know, they just, they kind of feel like they're being pushed out when, if we can eliminate that to start with, you know, it, it, it has helped us build our department and maybe it's something that can help other people build theirs. We try to show respect and play the people's strengths too. It's like we was talking about earlier, not everybody's interior, you know, not everybody's medical or something like that, you know, 
each person's got their their strengths and they're going to be able to help in different ways so we try to try to work around that and figure out who's better fit where you know you know one guy may be a better driver and pump operator and if that's all he wants to do and we need that you know we need somebody that's going to drive a truck out there and just stand at the pump panel make sure you got water coming you know so if that's all he wants to do and that's all that he's able to do then that's fine we still got to have that you know mm-hmm. So then it becomes our goal to make him the best engineer we can make him. Right. Bingo. Encourage him to come to drills and training, even though he might not be taking a hose line in, you find things for him to do on drill and training night. Right. Where he can sharpen his or her skills. We're only we're only as strong as our weakest link. And if you know, if we can strengthen those links, no matter what it is and how they work it, you know, you take for example our elderly couple that you know, that sit back and write our bonds for us, or not our bonds, but our grants. You know, that's that's the best place for them. You know, neither one of them need to be out there humping hose or anything like that. But they found that that's their niche and where they need to be. So we're going to give them everything that we can and support them in every way we can to help them with their path. Along with the guy that, you know, all he wants to do is, is be an engineer. We're going to support him 100%. Now, do you ever have to... One of the problems I've heard from some departments that do things like that with the different categories of members is sometimes it leads to a conflict of interior people thinking they're better than the drivers or this group thinking they're better. Is there anything that we can say or do to, to make it all one team so we don't have anyone being looking down at any other group? Well, I, I understand what you're saying, but, but what I tell everybody is, Nothing works if you don't have everybody. I mean, the guy up there at the end of the road on an accident scene that's holding a stop sign, if he ain't up there stopping everybody, then you can't do your job. So if you're the guy doing chest compressions on the guy, if, if somebody ain't stopping traffic, you're in the middle of the road having to do chest compressions, you can't do your job without the other guy. So that guy is just as important as you are. You know, if, if you know, a machine don't work if it ain't all oiled and everything working right. Right. You know, so that's, that's how we explain it to him. So no, no one person is better than the other. And in the next scenario, you may be the guy holding the stop sign and the other guy may be doing the work. You know, you never know. It just depends on who rolls up and how they roll up. Right. That's why I heard the expression once that firefighting is the ultimate team sport. Yes, it is. Yes. You know? And everybody contributes to the victory, which is successfully taking care of the patient, successfully mitigating the fire or whatever the emergency is, and everybody coming home to their families. <laughs> yeah, we don't want any one person to walk away and say, "Look at what I did." We, we don't like that, you know. You walk, you you can walk away and say we did our best, and it's we, then that's great. But if you walk or walk away from the scene saying, "Look what I did," and you didn't do anything, then that's that's wrong. You know, and that, you got to stop that. Chief Akins, I can see how you're you you motivate people. <laughs> Is that just a gift, or where'd that come from? The army. Uh, the army. I learned a lot in the army. Uh, I was in six and a half years. I, I went through the ranks pretty quick. I I was promoted to E five pretty fast. I was young when I got it. So a lot of leadership lessons. I'm sure you can apply from the army to the uh, uh, fire. A lot of my life, um, I, I did it with the army, and like I said, I've coached. I've coached kids for 15 years through just about every sport you can think of. You you have to learn to be a leader with them because kids are. They're funny. <laughs> if you don't lead them, they won't work for you. 
Is there anything you two want to try to do that you haven't done yet that's maybe on your to-do list still to continue moving forward? I'd like to see all of our guys get their get their instructor and start teaching. You know, I, I really want to see my guys teaching at FDIC and speaking there. You know, to me, that will be the ultimate ultimate goal for me right there is if I can get somebody from our department to the point that they can t- go to FDIC and, and present, then that tells me I've done my job. That's a great goal. That's a great goal, and it's achievable for sure. You know, they're always looking for the newer instructors, the latest and greatest, and, uh, you know, encourage your your members, you know, to start writing and start teaching and put some ideas together, and they could be up at FDIC someday. That's great. Anything else you could think of that you haven't done yet? I know you were talking about a, bringing people into you to do training, like a residency uh, yeah, so- program. I'd like to be able to take that that volunteer that, that lives at some farther away place and just can't afford to go to fire one or two, pay the bills and all that still. I want to give him the place to stay where he's not having to worry about rent or anything like that so he can get his his fire one, his fire two, his EMT, you know, even on into his paramedic if that's the direction he wants to go. I want to open these opportunities to these young people and give them something that to me was very hard to get just because nothing there was, I had to wait to go here or I had to wait to go there. I want to give them a one stop. Hey, I can go here and get it all and be ready to go. Wow. Well, it's certainly been a heck of a journey. Um, And I don't think you can say the department, there's many departments that maybe had to start from, from scratch more than you had to, to, to hit that reset button, as I said earlier. And you gentlemen should be really proud of what you've accomplished. And I hope your members are proud. And I'm sure you tell your members all the time that you're proud of them to help continue yeah. with that house morale. Um, what would, what was the biggest challenge do you think that you faced when you came in? The buying for the members was the hardest thing to do and getting them to believe what, what I was putting out there, it was really going to come to fruition, you know, and then after that, it was getting the community support. That was, that was a little, even a little bit harder than getting the guys, but the guys made it easy once they started performing. And you outlined your expectations to the members and you yes, held sir. them accountable. And then you led by example. And you yep. both showed you were people of integrity, people that could be trusted, but also people that stayed focused on the mission. So what was the one thing, if there's a fire department out there that's struggling like you were, what's the, what one thing had the biggest impact on turning morale around and improving your department's operation? It's showing the guys that we cared about them as individuals and we cared about their family. You know, and it wasn't just, Hey, I'm here for myself that I was there for them too. And then bringing Chad in and then seeing that Chad cared about them as well was huge. You know, we kind of made it a point that the members that had kids and stuff like that, I made sure, Chad made sure that we made it to at least one of their sporting events. Show them inside of the fire department that we, we do really care. That's impressive. 
That's almost more impressive than going to wakes and funerals. That's really nice. You know, it reminds me. I know it. I know an officer. He was in a paid department, but it's all about building those relationships. He put in his phone his crew members' names, but then he would put their children's names in the notes section on the contact in his phone, so he would remember. He had a bad memory. He wasn't doing it. He wasn't being like, you know, just being deceitful he just wanted to remember names so he as they're sitting around having coffee during the day hey how's your daughter becky how's your son john is it one of and then he would put notes about whether on travel hockey or baseball whatever just to to build that relationship and sometimes that is so hard but to me it's so important to build a cohesive atmosphere in the volunteer fire department who wants yeah. to go down there if members are doing this, right? right. Heads again. And how important is it for you two to get, get along? How many times have I talked to firefighters out there? Oh, our chiefs don't talk to each other. I bet you talk every day. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. mean you always have to agree, right? There's respectful ways to discuss things. And again, this can be so hard, but it doesn't have to be. And if your right. members see chiefs that are committed to the mission and working together, chiefs that are trustworthy, chiefs that can disagree but still do it in a professional manner it's going to help the operation tremendously yep yeah that's that's a huge part of it you know it like i said it just the relationship that chad and i have outside of work the relationship that we have with our members inside and outside of work says i it's it's unimaginable how how well the guys like our department, you know, they, yeah. people don't understand that I've been, I've been to a few departments and I've never seen anything like this before. You know, any one of our guys calls right now and says, Hey, I need help. Almost the whole department will be there. Well, that's, that's one thing that they they know too, is before they weren't, they weren't offered any kind of help. Like they weren't allowed to talk about anything that was bothering them. Uh, you know, they were told to, to hold it in and stuff like that, you know, and that's the old mentality that we were all taught. Like when I was in years ago, it was that way. When I was in the army, you were taught that, you know, you see something, you think about it, you, you push it down, you keep it away, you know? And so these guys, they were taught that. And then even with their personal issues, you know, now they'll, they'll message us, they'll come to us, they'll sit down with us. We even have a guy that comes in, a, a chaplain that'll come in and sit down with people. And we've encouraged them to talk about their problems uh, personal issues, whatever, you know, if they're having an issue from something they've seen or done. Um, but just encouraging them and, and opening up about that has helped a lot too, because they, they see that we do care and that we're okay with that coming out and, and understanding that you do have to talk about things, not hold on to it. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said that that's the old mentality. You know, I know that's how we were taught, you know, right. and go on. Right. Well, again, as I said, it's been quite a journey. You you really have a lot to be proud of there. Do either of you have any last minute thoughts that you want to pass on to anybody out there that's been listening, that's maybe in the same boat, um, looking to change the culture in their organization, anything that maybe we didn't hit on or that you want to just reinforce or emphasize before we, uh, we sign off? I would just say always show appreciation to your people. If you appreciate them, they'll work for you harder. If, if you can get the family back in the firehouse, that's the way to the key to success right there is with the family involvement. Very good information. Um, oh, my gosh. You know, from, again, not always rocket science, but so hard for some organizations to do. 
you change the culture in your department. And I love your ending line in the email you sent me. You may not even remember what you said, Chief, but you said, I'm looking forward to the day that I can go to the station, meet Chad there for coffee, and we can watch the next generation pick up the hose and carry on. That is fantastic. And I think that's something that all good, true leaders would like to aspire to. Well, well said. I can't thank you two enough for spending an hour with me and, and our listeners, our thousands of listeners, to talk about one company's success story from rising up from some dark times. Eight members, eight members, no training, no accountability, no pride, no morale, no public support, no support from neighboring departments. You think there's some challenges there? You met them head on. Maybe it didn't happen overnight, but the first thing you did is said, give me a chance. I will show you that you can trust me. I have your back. We embrace and accept anyone that wants to be a member here. We'll find a role for you. We'll hold you accountable to do your role, but we'll have your back. And you will be a part of the White Rock family and your family will be a part of the White Rock family because we're inviting them into the house. We're doing things for them. We're going to mourn our losses and we're going to celebrate successes and go to the plays and football games and baseball games of our members. A lot of things to learn there. A lot of things people can copy and emulate to help improve their department. Chiefs, it's a great story. If anyone wants to reach out to either of you, can I ask for you, Chief and Assistant Chief Akins, to give your contact information, whether it's an email, whatever, however you want to do it. Assistant Chief Akins, I'll start with you. Do you have an email that they could get a hold of you if they had questions? Maybe they want you to come give them a motivational speech or learn some of your tricks. What do you I, I have an email. It's Akins, A-K-I-N-S dot Chad at Yahoo.com. Excellent, Chief. And how about you, Chief? My email is whiterock9001 at Yahoo. And anytime anybody has a question or anything that I can do to help them with their with their department or their personnel, I'm here for anybody. I certainly hope I see you brothers again. I first met the chief at the Missouri Fire School when I was down there presenting the last couple of years. I'll be back there again in February. Looking forward to it. They always have a great school there if you're in the area. Please uh, make plans to attend. It's the first weekend in February, and I will again be there. So thank you so much, uh, Chief Jason Bowman and Assistant Chief Chad Akins from the White Rock Fire Protection District in Missouri. Um, we had a great talk about redefining the culture in the volunteer firehouse. So thank you so very, very much. And to my listeners, I want to thank you for listening in. Please feel free to reach out to me if I can ever be of service. If you have any questions or ideas for future guests or shows or questions for me, um, you can get a hold of me. My email, T.A. Merrill, that's T.A. Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L, at T.A. Merrill 63 at AOL.com. But I have the Professional Volunteer Fire Department Facebook page that you can give a like and contact me through that. Instagram and Twitter, my website, theprofessionalvolunteerfiredepartment.com or theprofessionalvfd.com 
is up and running. It lists where I'm going to be traveling to, conferences that I'm going to be at, shows that, uh, that I can put on for you, uh, presentations, I should say, that I can put on for you. I don't do minstrel shows or anything like that. But check it out, please. I have links to all my articles and my podcasts. And um, if you'd like to purchase my book, again, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department is out through Fire Engineering Books and Videos. I have a link on my website that takes you right to the page to purchase the book. Or if you want a signed copy, feel free to reach out to me. And my next show is going to be Tuesday, December 12th, the last show of 2023. And I just want to say, as we enter the holiday season, and my next show will be in December, right in the heart of the holiday season. Remember that in addition to December being a very festive time of year, I say it every year on this podcast, unfortunately in the annals of the American Fire Service, it's also an extremely tragic time of year with many serious and tragic fires over the decades. Unfortunately, terrible line of duty deaths, civilian deaths, Listeners to this podcast have known that I've talked about it. We've devoted an entire episode to the month of December. All I'm going to say is please be extra careful and do everything that you possibly can to ensure that you're going home safely to your families. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe and please remember that true professionalism is never defined by a paycheck and our residents are owed professional service delivered by professional firefighters representing professional organizations. Take care, folks. Thank you. 